Bet365 sponsors our podcast, and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything that you need to bet on sport. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. And with over 45 million members, it's the world's favorite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalized bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, hello. Thank you for tuning into this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. It's an EFL themed podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, I'm Ali Maxwell. Alongside me today is George Ellick. And look, it, it all kicks off. In some ways, it has. We had some Carabao Cup games snuck in last weekend. We've got uh, the, the rest of the first round this coming weekend, and then the league starts on Saturday the 12th. So things really ramping up now uh, in the EFL, despite the fact that it feels like last season only only just finished. Uh, George, we've been really lucky on this podcast over the last few months to have interviewed some really fascinating people on various topics in the EFL. And today we've got three interviews and I'm just feeling very enthusiastic about it all because I think they're all fascinating people great talkers and interesting topics as well. Yeah, in a time where recruitment is very important, I think we've uh, we've managed to sign three absolute crackers here. Um, <laughs> certainly getting value for our, for our money. But first up, we've got Simon Weaver, uh, who is the manager of Harrogate Town, newly promoted to the EFL for the very first time. And he's been at the club since 2009, so 11 years. So we're going to find out about that rise up into the league and what they've been up to and how they're preparing for their first uh, campaign at this level and then you know we know the athletic has the very best sports writers around but um, it's great for us to get two who we think are, are up there with the best uh, in the land we've got daniel taylor um, talking about forest um, speaking about the matty cash deal and, uh, and and how they've rebuilt after disappointment at the end of last season by failing to make the playoffs and then michael walker whose pieces on the athletic have been um, a revelation uh, to me so far this year and the most recent is covering Sunderland it's called Sunderland in Limboland I'm not going to give any spoilers um, so we will wait to speak to Michael about the current situation and the takeovers uh, the prospective takeovers of the club uh, as it stands as well yeah, absolutely. A, a treat to talk to these guys, such great writers, as you've said. And of course, the place to read their writing, Daniel and Michael's writing, that is, is on the Athletic site. We're going to be referring to various pieces that they've written over the next hour or so. So do become a subscriber if you're not already. You can get a 30-day free trial, so you really can try before you buy if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod you can do a 30-day free trial before signing up to your annual subscription that's also where you can get all of the athletics podcasts including this one ad free if you are interested in that so theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod we're going to get cracking now Simon Weaver uh, is about to take charge of his first game at EFL level Harrogate Town their first time as an EFL club as well. And yet Weaver is instantly 
the longest serving manager of a club in the EFL. It's a fascinating story and we spoke to him about all aspects of it earlier today. Enjoy this interview with Simon Weaver. Always exciting to speak to someone for the first time on this podcast. So thank you to Simon Weaver from Harrogate Town for joining us this morning. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me on the show. Not at all. We've got plenty to chat to you about. Uh, It's a a fascinating time and and it's been one month and one day since you won the National League playoff final uh, with Harrogate. So you're preparing for life in the EFL for the first time in the club's history in what are unprecedented circumstances. First question is, uh, with just a few few days to go rather till your first cup game, uh, what have been the main challenges for you uh, as Harrogate Town manager approaching this season? There's been quite a few, actually. I mean, it's been a brilliant time and something that we've really um, embraced. But there's been a lot of pitfalls that, you know, you can see how a lot of clubs can fall into troubled waters by changing the dynamic in terms of uh, recruitment. You know, recruitment's key at any level. Um, And when you're going into new territory, it's easy to, it would be easy to get overexcited and, and thinking, right, okay, well, we need a lot more of this or a lot more of that. Um, and it's siphoning off all these messages and uh, emails from different agents and, and clubs and uh, loan potentials and making sure that we make the right moves because uh, we could all too easily fall into a, so many traps right now, whether it's expense or just getting the wrong player. Well, Simon, for, for those who follow football and have a passing interest in League Two, I think it's it's fair for us to say that they might be a little bit surprised uh, come next Saturday when they're looking through the scores in League Two and see Harrogate Town listed uh, as a League Two side. But it's been a remarkable story since you joined the club uh, as a manager, as a player manager, age 31, uh, apparently applying for the role with no management experience just because you live 15 minutes away from the uh, <laughs> from the stadium. And now yeah. you've got the club to the EFL with your father as chairman as well. I mean, mm. what an incredible decade or so. What do you put that success down to? Oh, just uh, a lot of determination and resilience through uh, difficult times. And it's been a roller coaster ride, but I guess being prepared to ride the punches and and find a way um, in the end, and um, and tr- trying to learn uh, on each occasion where we've come short or failed, and um, it's, we've been pretty relentless with our efforts um, in establishing a club within an area that's probably not been renowned for being a, a real footballing area um, within Yorkshire that is, you know, a real hotbed of football, but. Uh, I guess uh, within the golden triangle, they say Harrogate, it's um, you know not not been historically renowned for being a hotbed of football, but we've we've got there, and I think it's just through determination and resilience got to this stage. You're two days away from the club's first ever EFL Cup game, of course, uh, against Tranmere Rovers. Uh, I'm interested to know how you'll be approaching that game. Normally, this would be just inside the season, but but. This time round, it, it begins the season. Uh, how are you approaching the Carabao Cup game? Uh, does it give uh, your side a, a chance to, to face some of the biggest teams in the country or are you mostly focusing on League Two football this year? Well, the way we've prepared for any game uh, in any competition previously is just to be the same as normal, you know, and not chop and change the team too much, just 
be really focused on trying to do our best in every single competitive game and this will be no different obviously there's that extra excitement because we're playing Tranmere and then Grimsby and before our league uh, league starts against Southend so three away games to really look forward to but it'll be it'll be no different you know our last last competitive game was at Wembley and uh, it was only a few weeks ago when we did well against Notts County who came you know with big big reputations and historically a much bigger club than us and Tranmere will be for us it'll be the same kind of approach you know we'll just be we're very hard working know we, everyone will know the roles and and we'll just try and acquit ourselves you know with passion and and uh, show up with a, a really good performance this summer you've had to resurface uh, your pitch it was a 3g pitch which doesn't comply with the EFL regulations mm. this means that at least to start the season i think until about mid october you're ground sharing with, with doncaster uh, have you got any concerns as to how either of these things, firstly, you know, not playing our home games at home to start with and then having to, to not have the, the pitch that you've been so used to playing on, how that's going to impact your start to the season? I'll, I'll be honest, it doesn't really concern me because we've got a lot of uh, pressing matters to deal with, you know, in terms of making sure that re- recruitment's right, like I've already mentioned. And I think I think... There can be too many excuses in in football sometimes, and what we don't want to do is have a culture driven by excuses. We want we want that resilience and determination to keep striving and keep striving for continual improvement. And if we, because we're playing at Doncaster, it's, it's a sign of good progress, you know, and it's a sign that okay, we're being promoted. We have to sort our pitch out, um, and we have to give that time to bed in and make sure it's a very good pitch that suits the way we want to play. So. We're having to do it without fans anyway, which is a crying shame for our fans and for us, but for every team in the land. So, no, we don't want to focus just on, on the negatives of not being at home. We we, ha- we owe it to our supporters for when we meet again to be in a good position because we've uh, handled all these external factors. Simon, we're interested in, in all forms of the game on this podcast, but uh, maybe more so than, than other places on, on the tactical side of the game. And there's a lot of misconceptions about League Two football, uh, you know, a lot of stereotypes about long ball football. But last season, we saw three teams win automatic promotion, playing really nice, attractive attacking football. Um, a couple of teams playing four at the back, many teams in the league playing three at the back systems. So for those listening who are interested in the tactical side of the game, what can we expect to to see from your Harrogate Town side? How do you like them to play? How will you be setting them up? Well, I would say 90 to 95% of, of the time in the last three seasons since we turned professional, um, we've been 4-4-2, but there's been a fluidity within that and we've probed in different ways. So we're, we're prepared to um, hit the front man early in games in order to get us up the pitch um, and then the wine men coming in narrow to, to be a real handful as well. Um, but but when we've had the opportunity to create depth on the pitch and width, uh, then we've taken the opportunity as soon as possible to get the ball down and play and spend some time on the ball and, and probe in, in different ways. But uh, it's it's been a shape that suited our players. We've managed to keep two uh, forwards up the pitch and pressing high. We've managed to also go with that four-man midfield because we've got a lot of legs and energy in there and if we didn't then we, we might have to play the extra man in midfield but we've enjoyed you know getting it out wide and, and fullbacks driving on as well and overlapping and underlapping and and so that we've had not an old school forward so we've had you know we're proud of it that we've we've had um 
good fluidity. We've had one out and out winger, another winger that's been able to drift across the line and, and make an extra number up in midfield. And, and that allows for freedom for the fullbacks to really go and attack and, and provide the width. Simon, so looking at the previous National League playoff final winners, they've got a pretty good record. In 2015, it was Bristol Rovers, who now play in League One. Grimsby in 2016 have, have kept their their position. Then Forest Green, who of course had an had a unsuccessful playoff campaign two seasons after coming up. Tranmere, who got back-to-back promotions. And then Salford, who finished in the top half last season and, and are amongst the favourites to go up from League Two this season. So a decent record there for the sides coming up in the past. Are you hopeful, are you expectant that you can keep up that, that tradition of, of teams kicking on? Well, I mean, it, it's... Uh... A hard act to follow, but it certainly is encouraging, you know, those statistics of teams that have gone up through the playoffs. I think it does generate a lot of excitement and with that enthusiasm and, and good forward momentum. But we're not taking anything for granted. I mean, we've had two promotions in the last three seasons and um, we're realistic enough to know that, you know, we've got to keep learning and learn fast because there might be a few bloody noses, but it's how we react then. I would love to be in the upper realms of League Two um, with the, the large groups of, of the players, the core of the players that were with us when we turned full-time in the Conference North. Um, and it would show a good sign of development and a good ethos at the club. And that's something that we're proud of and determined to maintain. But, you know, it's a, it's a tough league. Um, we, we want to get the, those points on the board as quickly as possible and then for, for the players to re- be able to relax that bit more and really express themselves. We're not taking anything for granted. And I, did, I think we're a different case to S- S- Salford and Tranmere and, and many different clubs who have gone up before us and Forest Green. Um, we haven't chased the prize at all, you know, financially, and nor have we got a massive fan base. So it, it's different and with it brings its own tests. But we've, we've certainly got a lot of pride and, and uh, certainly a lot of determination. Well, Simon, I have no doubt whatsoever you'll pick up some more fans as the season progresses in League Two. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us today. Uh, all the best from us for Harrogate Town for the season and hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you very much and lovely to speak to you all. Cheers. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com. You've got the opportunity to sip eight delicious and painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. Now, if that's not enough for you, as a listener of our show, you'll also get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. And they're now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is very much in your hands and they deliver your beers straight to your front door. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget right now, listeners get two extra free beers. So delighted to have the athletics writer, Michael Walker, joining us uh, on the back of your piece, Michael Sunderland in Limbo Land. Um, And it's fair to say reading it casts a pretty bleak picture of Sunderland, maybe a different picture to the one that we see on Netflix and Sunderland Till I Die, a little bit more realistic about the issues the club face at the moment. Um, what prompted you 
to to write this piece uh, about the club? There hasn't been much written about Sunderland uh, nationally for some time, and that is part of the issue for the fans on Weir side. If you if you read and speak to them, they are very conscious that there's a lot of attention paid, especially to their neighbours' takeover, and they're in the the midst of a takeover themselves. So that was one of the reasons for writing it was to, to just to update people on where we are and remind uh, and remind people nationally that Sunderland are in in the process of a takeover dash allegedly. There are lots of their fans who are skeptical about the ownership, skeptical about the state of the takeover, if there is one where it's going and then they're also worried about some of these people who come in and are circling Sunderland just as as I said in the piece you know the the fans of Charlton Athletic and Wigan Athletic are anxious about the kind of characters who move onto the scene at this stage in in a takeover process. The motivation was to bring people up to speed because there is this idea formed that Sunderland are a Netflix club you know it's just like you know Sunderland are an entertainment and I don't think that does the club any favours and it certainly doesn't do their fans any favours Sunderland are much more than you know obviously much more than that I just wanted to to bring people back to where the state of the takeover is where the state of the squad is and I went to their first game their first pre-season friendly at Gateshead just again to just sort of see and have a look at the squad the players try and speak to Phil Parkinson which he was able to for a couple of minutes at the end and reassess where Sunderland are in the light of especially the remarkable notion from the bookmakers that they are seven to one favourites to be promoted and let's focus on the takeover just for a minute or two I mean as you as you call it the alleged takeover because from from where I'm sitting as a, a not an expert it doesn't seem like there's that much movement on that front I mean I'm looking at a headline from December 2019 Stuart Donald actively trying to sell the club uh, from July 2020 Sunderland owner desperate to sell the club uh, we're in September now so let's call it nine months of of looking to sell desperate to sell uh, is it close what is the status of, of a of a potential takeover as part of the the article I sent Sunderland's board you know, written questions because I just thought we have to try and find out because they aren't saying anything. So there is no information. So in the absence of information, there is rumour. And then you have these other people coming in claiming to be in the process. What we think is happening is that the selling price is $37.5 which people who look at the figures of Sunderland and possible legacy transfer debt their wage bill in League One think is an unrealistic figure. So you've you've got that. Part of the um, excitement around last season was that there were Americans coming in to take over and they were linked to Michael Dale. Sunderland would be transformed. But that quickly dissolved into a loan from Americans for £9 million. And we don't know the status of that loan. What we do know is that the loan is secured against the club. If for any reason Sunderland default on the loan, then it falls into the hands of three American men um, called, whose initials are uh, FPP, not 
FFP, FPP, um, and that would be for nine million pounds. So y- you could actually argue that at one level, the realistic value of the club is nine million pounds. In the background, we also don't know the existing relationship economically that the previous owner, Alice Short, has with the club and has with the two men who took over or who were given the club at a very, very good price, Stuart Donald and Charlie Methvin. Stuart Donald remains in charge but has stepped back. Methvin departed the scene last December. He has still 6% of the club. It's really hard to know. And it looks like they're going to start this. I mean, their season starts on Saturday in the League Cup against Hull. And then they have Bristol Rovers on Saturday week. It would be a surprise to everyone if there was a takeover completed by Bristol Rovers. Reading the piece, uh, William Storey, um, who fronts one of the supposed takeover bids, seems like an interesting character. Uh, He's very vocal on social media from issues uh, such as some interesting thoughts on on COVID to to some uh, picking fights with some owners of other League One sides, such as Darren McAntony, about their transfer policy. Uh, In the piece, you mentioned some uh, issues with previous court cases and some outstanding charges that he uh, is facing up to, although he seems to not be particularly concerned by them. Um, How credible a buyer is he seen to be by both the current owners of the club and by the the fan base who are clearly so desperate for a change? Whenever someone appears, there's always that rush amongst any fan base to sort of welcome them and see, you know, and wish them good luck. Please buy our club, please invest loads of money and take us up. Then people start looking into them. And and in the case of William Story, you know, there are, there are, you know, there's an outstanding debt of £35,000, which doesn't it from a court case in early 2019. Now, that doesn't sound a lot. And in a way, you could you can look at it that way. That's a, an insignificant figure. But he was ordered to repay that within 14 days in court. He hasn't paid it. I got in contact with the company he who he was due to pay it to and they said a year on they haven't received it and then subsequently found out that he's engaged in a court case in October and that's for the much bigger sum of 6.1 million pounds how he can mount a credible takeover in uh, with that going on I don't know and I think that the fan base have walked away from him for want of a better phrase and they just don't see him as credible there are occasional whispers in you know the Sunderland Echo that he is not seen as credible from the boardroom so maybe there are people in the club sort of dismissing him I don't think that's going to happen the issue is you just don't know whenever you look at some of the takeovers that have have occurred at Charlton at you know possibly Wigan you have to be really careful about dismissing people so I I don't see that. And in that case, then, is, the, is there another party who are interested? And you get the feeling that there isn't. So that means that Sunderland are going into the season with Stuart Donald in charge and a salary cap that they voted against. I agree with Sunderland voting against that. Sunderland, it means Sunderland have to pay the same wages as Rochdale. And it that's not a realistic assessment of those two clubs. Let's just touch on Stuart Donald and Charlie Methven, because, of course, by the time 
the world learned all about them on the Netflix documentary Sunderland Till I Die, season two. Uh, actually, certainly in Charlie Methven's case, he had stepped back, or at least publicly. He'd, uh, he'd announced his resignation as a director uh, back in December 2019. Stuart Donald, of course, who, who we saw a lot of on that documentary, uh, it, it also feels like he has become less and less involved. Um, to what extent are they still involved, those two, as far as you understand, with, with the running of the club? And and if not much, uh, who is in charge of, of running you know, the business side of things and, and the football side of things? They appointed a new chief executive, um, Jim Rodwell, not not Jack Rodwell, Jim Rodwell <laughs> from, uh, from Scunthorpe. That would have been popular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this fella might be as about as popular because we don't hear very much. So he has been he has been appointed. He had previously been at Scunthorpe and before that at um, Notts County. So he he saw a few things there. He was also had an amount of time on the board at the EFL. I'm not sure exactly how long. So he's in charge in the uh, of the day to day administration of the club. Stuart Donald has stepped back, but. I spoke to William Story to give him a hearing, and he said that he is talking to Stuart Donald. That's he's not talking to Jim Rodwell. Now, you, you know, if you take that at face value, Stuart Donald is leading the discussions about trying to fi- find a buyer, but he physically says that he has stepped back. But I don't know how someone who can own so much of the club can step back, and and the same with. Charlie Meth then, who still owns 6% of it. So it's easy to say they're stepping back and remove themselves from, you know, the line of fire, so to speak, but they'll still be involved. You also mentioned in the piece um, two Sunderland fans, um, David Jones and Tom Sloan's, both appointed as non-executive directors back in, in December, which seemed like quite a strange move, purely if the, they were looking to sell the club uh, to appoint two people who to come in and to help with the strategy. And you mentioned with David Jones with the recruitment and the academy as well. Um, I'm an Oxford fan, so I saw the positive impact that Jones had um, at Oxford in his time there in those areas. And it seemed like a very positive move. Has this in some way helped the fans um, help repair any damage created between uh, Methven and Donald and the fan base in appointing these two? And, and, And what can we expect their kind of long lasting impact to be at the club if it does remain up for sale? The answer to the first part is not yet, because, you know, more needs to happen. But that's a really that's a really difficult job that David Jones has got trying to restructure an academy that has lost staff but more importantly, lost lots and lots of good young boys who, whenever they are approached by Premier League clubs, academies such as Manchester United and Liverpool, understandably go there. What Sunderland have to do is rebuild trust in the local community towards the academy, reconnect parents to the academy, not just the boys. That's obviously a long-term job. You know, they have made some signings specifically for the academy, but... That is not an easy task and it is a major priority for the club because in a salary cap era, having really good young players is is invaluable. But they have lost so many um, who could now be making an impact in the squad. You know, not, I'm not saying they're going to be in the first team, but they could be they could be pushing the first team squad. And that would also it would also bring a different feel to the club. Oh, look, there's Sunderland. 
you know they're struggling in League One, but they've got this. They've got a lot of young player, young talent in the academy. That would the club would then have a different profile, and it would actually, in cynical terms, be easier to sell. But it doesn't have that. It's lost those boys, and those two non-executive directors have been appointed as fans. They're obviously their motivation isn't in doubt. That you know they're desperate to to push the club forward. But that's much much easier said than done. So you would probably need to take two, three years, maybe even five years to judge that. You know how how they how they get on. A new academy head is expected to be appointed soon. Whether he or she has a, a you know has the desired impact, we we'll just have to see. Again, whenever appointments are made at club, there's always this clamour immediately. Oh, that's a great appointment! But then you know. Three months later, people start saying, well, I don't know how great that was, you know. So I don't like the answer, wait and see. But unfortunately, in that case, it is wait and see. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it's, abs- it's, a, it's a pleasure to speak to you because I must say, uh, over the last year or so, I've, I've really enjoyed reading your stuff. We both have and some oh, fascinating right. interviews and profiles and features up there. So if anybody hasn't read Michael's stuff, um, I'd just type his, his name into the author search page and have a look through the stuff, uh, especially an interview with Ian Holloway earlier in the year was, uh, was a particular highlight. So great right. to speak to Thank you, Michael. You. Thanks very to speak much. To you again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. It's brilliant to be joined by The Athletic's Daniel Taylor. Last time we spoke about Forrest with someone from The Athletic, it was Daniel's colleague, Paul Taylor, uh, and that was in the aftermath of final day, or final night, as it was uh, in the 1920 season. It still feels not that long ago, but a lot has changed since then. And, and Daniel, there were a lot of raw emotions at that time. We, we literally spoke to Paul at about 8am the morning afterwards. Uh, it, it felt like there was a chance that such an implosion to end the season could or would end to, to quite big changes at the club once again. But that's actually not been the case. Uh, and they head into the season, Sabri Lamucci very much in charge. Bits and bobs have changed behind the scenes. Uh, first question, what do you know about how the club acted and decided to move forward in those tricky days following the end of the season? It's bad memories for me as someone that sort of grew up watching Forest. And on that morning you're talking about, I, I must admit, I woke up thinking that... Um, I thought because of the, you know, it's quite, I suppose, trigger happy is not a very nice word, but it's quite, it's quite an emotional environment. The, the, um, the Greek owners have got a reputation from Olympiakos of moving managers in and out, and they've done the same at Forest, really. But I know that they did, they have always liked Sabu Lamucci. That said, I, I, I thought that he'd be gone in the morning. I just thought that it was such a, uh, you know, it was such a desperate kind of collapse. I just didn't think that they would take public humiliation like that. And um, as you as you correctly say, you know, basically they, they've actually taken the view that to keep him on, you know, they they, they brought him over to to Greece. They've they've argued about certain things. They've agreed on certain things. I think he's 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 now getting more of a say in transfer recruitment than he was. And there's been some changes in the backroom staff and they've been bringing in more sort of experienced championship type players rather than kind of going with young, you know, Portuguese kids who really, you know, apart from like some, you know, glimpses of talent haven't really been promotion material. So, so yeah, so, so there've been a lot of changes, but not really the changes that perhaps sort of in that kind of really emotional sort of um, post-mortem that, that you might have expected. 
for us covering the, the league, it, it did seem very quickly as if it went from being, you know, Lamucci is is the saviour of Nottingham Forest to suddenly being a lot of uncertainty around his his position after that collapse towards the end of the season. But as you say, uh, the owners have maintained the faith. Lamucci comes into the season in charge, and and that uncertainty seems to have certainly gone now. The fans very much on board and some eye-catching transfer business as well. Uh, Lyle Taylor's been brought in to take some of the, the goal-scoring burden off the shoulders of Lewis Graben. Uh, Tyler Blackett and Jack Colback, two solid championship players. Luke Freeman, a player coming on loan from Sheffield United, who has that attacking quality proven in the championship as well. And uh, Fuad Bashiru, who we don't know much about, who's come in from Malmo. So the transfer business seems to be pretty good. The faith in Lamucci seems to be back. So would you agree that the the swagger, the, the confidence that Lamucci inst- instilled at Forest seems to have returned ahead of the new season? Probably have to reserve a little bit of judgment there on just whether they start the season with... I, I wouldn't be... You know, it doesn't feel like particularly long ago since the whole trauma, I suppose, is probably the best word of what happened against Stoke and you know, is there going to be a bit of a hangover of the of the team you know as soon as as soon as something goes wrong in a game and the team going to all of a sudden the, is the team going to start feeling nervous and get it's been that way with Forest for a long time basically a lot and you know playing with there's a lot of pressure at Forest I mean I think I think kind of quite similar to sort of how Leeds have had it really and as a as a big club in the championship where everyone is sort of yearning a return to the, to the to the top division and it, and it hasn't happened. I mean, it's now, you know, it's 21 years since Forrester in the Premier League, which is, you know, fairly shocking. And there's, there's a lot of pressure sort of on the club to get back. And the the Greek ownership of, has, has, has kind of deliberately uh, sort of increased that pressure because they, they want to make it clear that... Um, that Forest have to think like a big club and they have to get back. So, so I'm slightly, I'm slightly worried. I have to be honest that there might be some sort of hangover or there might be a little bit of psychological damage, I suppose, to the team. But yes, I think, um, I think your wider point about basically they've made some shrewd signings and you know the players you mentioned there haven't. You know, most of them have been free signings. To be honest, um, Lyle, Lyle Taylor was. You know, obviously. Had you know had a very good spell for Charlton, um, and we, we desperately needed another striker. Um, we've lost Ben Watson, who, and I think I think that's a bigger blow than maybe a lot of people realise because everything really went, went went through him in the team. Um, at the same time, they brought Jack Cole back um, back to the club, and he you know he was our player of the season a couple of years ago, but then obviously had to go back to Newcastle uh, from his loan spell. So so we've made you know we've made some what I would describe as shrewd signings. I think they're probably going to bring in a couple more as well. Well, yes, because they've just received or will receive quite the windfall for uh, youngster Matty Cash. I say youngster, he's got plenty of games under his belt in the last few years. He's the the latest Nottingham Forest Academy graduate to get a chance in the team, to to seize that chance uh, and to move on and and make the club uh, a pretty penny. Uh, He's moving to Aston Villa, we believe. uh, And I just wanted to get uh, uh, your... Um, your story really on how that's, that transfer has taken place. You've been reporting that for The Athletic in the last few days. The end game was quite quick really. They, they, um, Villa have been one of one of a few clubs. Sheffield United were the first club that came in for them. They, but Sheffield United sort of went really low. Um, I think they bid £7 million and they offered Luke Freeman on loan as sort of part of the package. And that, I mean, that, that was... A, I'm not sure if they were making that bid on the basis that the market might have changed in COVID. But, but if you think that in January... 
Milan made a £15 million bid. Um, the only reason that bid from Milan didn't work is that they structured it in such a way that it was kind of in five instalments. So basically it would have been £3 million up front and then, you know, kind of like you know, another year down the line, another £3 million. And Forrest were very much along the lines of, you know, they wanted, if they were going to sell one of the best players, they, they wanted a large amount of money up front. Um, Forrest obviously got FFP issues, as most clubs have in the championship. So, so, um, so yeah, so Villa, I mean, they, Villa opened up with a £10 million bid and then basically they made free, then when would it have been, uh, Tuesday evening, they had a lot of talks. Uh, Villa came back with 12 and they were putting add-ons on and the add-ons were along the lines of, you know, once he's played 10 games for England, you know, we'll put another million in. And uh, and I think Forrest really didn't want to budge from from getting around 15 million. West Ham had also bid for him in um, in January and uh, Fulham were keen this, this time around. And, um, you know, so there were quite a few clubs and I don't think Forrest were... You know, were willing to budge basically, and in in the end, Villa they sort of reached a little bit of a compromise because because the the fee is fourteen million pounds up front, and then there's another two million pound potentially in add-ons. So I mean, it's, you know, I think it's one of those rare occasions. It's probably a, a deal that suits everyone really. You know, Forest have you know, Forest have got potentially a club record uh, fee for an outgoing player. It's another one of Gary Brazil's academy products, as you as you say. You know, sort of it seems like every year a player from the academy is sold, and sadly that's the that's the uh, sort of consequence of of messing up. You know, the championship season. You know, every year for FFP a player has to be sold, and we're very fortunate that our academy is is so good at bringing these players through. Villa, meanwhile, have got you know what a really good player, really popular lad, um, great attitude. Funnily enough, wasn't even a right back until, uh, so I mean, this time a year ago, I think it was basically Lamushi sort of converted him into a, into a right back. And I can remember his first game against West Brom, he just, you know, he looked what he was, which was a, you know, he started off as a central midfielder and then he'd kind of gone to the right hand side of midfield. And and as a fullback, he, you know, there were a couple of times where he was caught, caught out in his first game. And I can remember thinking, I wasn't sure whether it was going to work. And, um, and then ever since then, you know, he, I mean, he ended up as the uh, player of the season for Forest. Gary Brazil tweeted yesterday, as always for him, mixed emotions. He, he really is at the forefront of Nottingham Forest's uh, exceptional, exceptional academy um, uh, set up. And uh, it's, it's always yeah mixed emotions for him when, when they sell a player that's come through the system because there's a lot of pride there, but also sad to, to see him go. But it is close to £50 million in, uh, in sales of academy graduates just in the last few seasons. Uh, Cash, of course, Arvin Appiah, uh, Ben Brereton, Osborne uh, and Burke as well a few years ago. So it's a, a very impressive part of the football club. Uh, and thank you for, for taking us through all of it, really. Your thoughts uh, about the end of last season and how that finished and just some some reserved excitement, I reckon, about the season ahead. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Pleasure. Right, well, I don't think... Any of those disappointed, certainly not from my perspective, George, and what we were hoping to get out of our our three guests today. Uh, Three very different topics, uh, each pertaining to a different team in one of the three EFL divisions. What stood out for you most? What will you remember most about about the the chats we've just had? (laughs) I think speaking to a, a manager who's taken a club 
um, over an 11 year period through non-league and into the EFL and him just being so grounded and so you know level-headed about what's in store um, just struck me as, as being as being really interesting I mean reading his story in, in preparation for uh, today's interview um, in, in Simon Weaver's first season at, at Harrogate they were only spared relegation due to two other clubs effectively being thrown out of the league and it just goes to to show you what a bit of faith in a manager um, a bit of time to turn things around a bit of an understanding that that you know these new managers need to to learn uh, and develop uh, and and what it can do and and I think I speak for everybody who follows the EFL in and even before speaking to Simon uh, I'll be following the the Harrogate Town story pretty closely but having spoken to him he just seemed like a really nice guy and yeah. uh, I'm I'm sure he's going to be pretty popular with both fans and media alike uh, <laughs> in this in this first season in the EFL he definitely will be and, and we need to um you know uh, regulations permitting booking a trip up to Harrogate I think it's fair to say to watch <laughs> this team in the flesh I really enjoyed watching Harrogate in in those National League playoff uh, games the semi-final and the final they were a team in his image I would say even just chatting to him for 10 minutes they were level-headed uh, and uh, when we asked him about tactics it's exactly what I saw that they had different ways of playing no one like obvious style that they were wedded to um, but just a, a good way of of creating chances they looked very solid and you know I think there's a ridiculous stat that no team that's come up from the National League has been relegated from League Two the following season, mm. um, going back you know thirty years and uh, to the time where teams were voted out rather than relegated out. So a bit of pressure on Harrogate and, and Barrow under David Dunn to to continue that theme. Uh, and you know you talk about sticking with a manager. I will never forget that interview with Paul Taylor the, the morning after final day. You mm. know the, the the way that he spoke about how how the forest uh how how the, how the reaction had gone basically to to what daniel explained as being the most absurd implosion i mean i'm not even sure we quite summed it up as well as he did at the time that the, the the very fact of what had to happen for forest not to take part in the playoffs it it was pretty remarkable um and it was it was just i enjoyed talking to daniel from a true fan's perspective you could you could you could feel sort of both sides of the coin the, the excitement and, and the, the satisfaction at the decision to stick with Lamucci and some of the additions, you know, he talked about championship experience rather than maybe some of those uh, like Portuguese flair players that haven't had such a, a big impact as they would have hoped. But also just there was a limit to it, wasn't it? It's kind of once bitten, twice shy, or maybe in, in forest terms, sort of 10 times bitten, 20 times shy. He, he, he wasn't going all in, was he? Which I think is uh, is understandable um, with, with Forrest's recent history. Uh, and then, well, with Michael Walker and Sunderland, I found it quite bleak. Not, not Michael specifically, who I thought <laughs> explained what is, as always, in terms of football club governance, quite a complicated issue, but I thought he explained it really well. And I hate saying it, but it didn't give me a huge amount of hope for, you know, the sort of swift resolution that I think the fans and certainly from my perspective, uh, what I would expect is kind of needed in order for Sunderland to start moving upwards again, uh, rather than just sort of trailing. Um, uh, And I found it quite a difficult listen, but I think an important one to, to understand exactly what's going on there. Yeah, it feels with Sunderland like we've seen their lowest ebb a few times. And this seems like another one, another false dawn, followed by another moment where they look around themselves wondering how on earth have we ended up here. Um, 
as we spoke about, there do seem to be some positive appointments at the club, but mm. they just seem totally at odds with an owner who's looking to sell, despite constantly telling the fan base that the club is up for sale, making appointments and trying to improve certain areas would suggest that they are not particularly confident in that happening anytime soon. And there are quite clearly issues with both of the, the public um, interested, you know, the, the interested parties that are we are aware of at the moment, whether that's in terms of their, you know, their their intentions for the club and for the stadium and the academy, or whether it's just their credibility as a possible owner. Um, it's always interesting at Sunderland. It's certainly never boring, and the favourites for League One come into the season seemingly not thought of as being the most likely winners by anybody except for the bookmakers. So. Maybe this is what Sunderland need. Maybe this is where mm. they're going to surprise us. For once, the expectations seem low and they've certainly got a manager who's proven in the past that he can um, make, a, make a pretty good fist out of a bad situation. So I, I agree with what Michael's saying that the, the odds of, of, of them being favourites doesn't seem to ring true. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't want to be writing them off. Yeah, they could well get going under Phil Parkinson. You wouldn't be surprised if they are, at the very least, an excellent defensive side and they and they still have those individual players who you look at and you look at their careers and, 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 and it seems like they should perform well at League One level. So all, all hope is certainly not lost on the field, but off it, it it's, it's uh, you know, something needs to change. Something's got to give, I think. It, it doesn't feel like those two proposed bidders that Michael ran us through um, from my perspective anyway it didn't, it didn't feel like anything was imminent there so something does need to give and it's another just a reminder to, to not just to focus on Sunderland but to anyone listening that when new owners come in you, you have to be wary of the words that they say and, and, and wait for the actions that they make I think um, certainly in, in Sunderland's terms this ownership group when they came in took such a proactive approach to communication with the fans which had been so lacking as it is at many clubs and it was such a popular stance and it, it really did help to breathe some life into the club in that initial period but the way in which they have sort of gone to ground so to speak and, and have stopped all communication with fans um, it's, it's very hard to watch so you know we, we said the same thing with the Charlton owners when they came in ESI as exciting as it was for Charlton fans to see Du Châtelet leave um, you know those, those early statements were so positive and it, it almost felt like they'd been very well advised on what to say to, to sort of carry favour with the fan base but you do have to wait uh, and, and judge them on actions uh, not on, on, on how good their words sound early on uh, that's it for this week's Going Up Going Down next week I mean I think we can all agree that uh, we'll be getting quite excited about the start of the season it's going to be great to see football back in League One and League Two for the first time since March and another as always tantalising championship season awaits it's very hard to know exactly what will happen in the second tier uh, just a, a huge thank you to all of our guests today we're always so grateful when people give up their time to, to discuss topics that they are such experts on Daniel Taylor of course of The Athletic Michael Walker too uh, and Simon Weaver from Harrogate Town if you want to read Michael's piece Sunderland in Limbo Land I would very much recommend doing so and if you're not a subscriber of The Athletic then you can be by going to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod make sure you're subscribed to this one and we'll be back again next week thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs>